Hi everyone! Welcome back to Oh Holy Night, conversations on Christmas, liberation, and healing for Black, Indigenous, and women of color. I'm your host, Camille, and for this episode, I am speaking with Charday Renee. Charday is a wife to one, mama to three, young royalty. She is a social reformer currently returning home to the art of storytelling. This tradition is an art form that is deeply embedded into her through her Afro-Indigenous roots. Charday is most aligned within herself when she nurtures empowered interwoven stories to inspire those around her to rise. In this episode, Charday and I talk about all things relevant to us as mixed Black moms who we got some trauma and we continue to be traumatized by these raggedy institutions that are built on misogynoir and indigenous erasure. So we'll start by sharing our experiences with the Black maternal health crisis, then we kind of go off from there. If you're unaware, the Black maternal health crisis in America is exposing how medical inequity makes pregnancy and birth incredibly dangerous for Black women. We are at least three times more likely than white women to die during pregnancy, birth, and postpartum stages. Charday and I both are Black women who birthed pandemic babies earlier this year, and we are learning how to raise our kids with liberation at our center. And honestly, it's just not an easy thing to do. So Charday is vulnerably sharing her struggles as an adoptee who is navigating through motherhood and who's also building her own roadmap on what this journey looks like for her. So y'all, the way that Charday shares so honestly and vulnerably in this conversation really is something to behold. I am so honored to have this conversation with her, and I'm also so honored to share it with you. Now, if you're enjoying this episode, go ahead and like, subscribe, and save, and also comment so others can find out about this Advent devotional. All right, let's get into it. Welcome back, everyone, to Oh Holy Night. Today, I have Charday Renee, who is here with me, and we are both Black women. We are both mixed women. We are both moms, moms of three who live in Southern California and just so happen to have pandemic babies. So <laughs> we have a lot of intersections <laughs> that are happening right now. Um, what I wanted to talk to Charday about today was birth, but not just like birth stories and our experiences in birthing, but the fact that there is a maternal health crisis, um, specifically surrounding the inequity in the medical field for black women and Charday, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm so glad to be here and to connect with you and I'm glad yeah, talk about these babies. I know, long time coming. <laughs> I know, and talk about these babies, you know, the, the children that follow us. Yes, right. <laughs> so let's go to our first question, Charday. If you feel comfortable sharing, um, what route did you choose to take for your prenatal care for your third yeah. child, I should say? Yes, yes. I. Uh, how many more? Um, <laughs> no more, please. Yeah, for my third, it was the same as my other two. I had the same prenatal team, which was great. I think um, having a surprise pregnancy in a pandemic, there were moments of comfort knowing that I knew this team from before. And through those two um, prenatal and postpartum experiences with this team, I did 
feel as though I was able to voice some of my concerns mm-hmm. and have more informed consent than I think from those of my friends who were also having, you know, similar life changes with families and babies. Um, so I stuck with my same team, but there were also new doctors from the first time I had my first, you know, almost six years ago to now. So even though I was with the same um, group of physicians, I did have like new specific OB physicians in this third pregnancy. Oh, wow. What, what, so even though you had the same, but still new, did you find that there are differences in your interactions or how you're being treated um, from your care providers? Yeah, it's interesting. So the previous three that I had with my other two, um, there were a smaller group. So there was three main physicians and probably another physician coming in, but that was after my second was born. Mm-hmm. Um, but I felt as though almost, they felt like grandparents, they were a lot older. Um, and so I think there was more of a sense of like, they know what they've been, they're doing because they've been doing this for a very long time. And so they were super informative. Okay. Um, with the questions that I have, because they've been servicing women and families in my area for a very long time. With these new physicians, I welcomed that they were women and that the majority of them, ironically, were women of color, which was awesome. a surprise to me because that, that is, wasn't the previous rare. <laughs> yeah. Super rare. Okay. Yeah. So my main, my main two doctors, one was white and one was, um, a woman of color. I don't know her ethnicity because we were wearing masks the whole entire time, but um, yeah. So anywho, I did feel like there was a sense of comfortability with that. Like they were women and there was a woman of color on my team. Mm-hmm. And towards the end of my pregnancy, she was the one I was really going to um, in regards to the prenatal care and postpartum. Um, so that's, there's similarities because it was the same group, but yes, this was a different experience with this third child with new doctors. And you know, Mark not coming to any appointments, um, which is a rare thing for us. So, um, it just felt a little bit more lonely this time. Yeah, no, same. And I, 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 whoever's hearing this, if you know, I also, our kids are like a week or two apart. (laughs) So also had a pandemic baby and yeah, it was super lonely. Like my, my, well, with my first two kids, I had a midwife and a home birth. So everything was at home. And then with my third kid, I was, I decided to go to a birthing center, but it was still such a lonely experience because it was just me. And there were a couple of times where I had, I had to bring my two kids. So that those were like the most chaotic, (laughs) like it's, it's just chaos because you can't bring other people into the birth center. Um, right. My prenatals, like I had two prenatals that happened in my car and stop it right now. I, <laughs> let me tell you. So it, they were like in my car, my two kids were like jumping around in my tiny Prius and the, um, midwife took my blood pressure first and my blood pressure was elevated and <laughs> she had to take it five minutes later. <laughs> and she just sat there and she's like, I just want you to take three deep breaths. And I oh did. Once I did that, my blood pressure went down significantly to a normal level. And she was like, I knew that you were just stressed because your kids are in the car. Like it's right. fine. But there just to re- go back to the conversation, like, yeah, being pregnant in the time of like a literal plague has been yes. a different kind of experience and loneliness because you expect to I I felt like I expected to share my joy and it was done 
through social media or like on FaceTime, like there was no, there was no people. Just so lonely. Yeah. I think too, I mean, just, I'm not good with change either. So like this abrupt change of like my eldest being pulled from preschool, which then later closed and then trying to find him a new space in the fall, being freshly pregnant, being bedridden. It was my worst pregnancy, you know, knock, knock, having a girl apparently. And Uh, this is true. Verified facts. Yes. I didn't know (laughs) this. And I'm like, what is like, what is happening? And then I ended up getting COVID halfway through and Mm. it just was like so many, so many things that I was already experiencing by myself, I think just felt even more pressed in with the, the things of the world falling apart around us all at the same time. Like my world was kind of crumbling just personally because of this new dynamic family dynamic that was coming our way. And obviously the pandemic affecting us personally, but then this collective shift and, you know, transition, it just really felt like there was no room for rest or ease or for me personally to enjoy because there were so many other things grappling at my mind Mm -hmm. with all the events that started unfolding that like it just felt for me in this pregnancy felt a lot like I really had to dig deep for that joy and really seek the eagerness for a daughter and what that meant for me and my bloodline and it just to me, I would say this pregnancy was, yeah, the most loneliest, loneliness, loneliest, excuse me, time and season. It was just, it was barren winter grounding, I think for me. Yeah. Thank you for yeah. sharing that. Yeah. The lonely, yeah, just the pregnancy and the loneliness that came with the pandemic on top of the stress of not only wondering if, if you would survive COVID or if you're going to catch yes. it again, but also like we, we, as moms are responsible for the additional lives that we have to take care of. Um, yep. yeah, I, I also got COVID, um, when I was pregnant, our lives are like intersecting so much That's like COVID in my <laughs> first trimester. Okay. And I was in that, um, that space of wondering whether or not we were going to miscarry because of it. Yeah. On top of like my, my husband had it and he was quarantined. I had it, but I still had to take care of the, the younger children. And yeah, you had to reach deep for joy. I had to reach, I had to reach deep for joy. And there were moments where I just had to accept they didn't have it. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, I'm not going to say those were freeing moments, but before that I had pretty much been raised in this idea that I had to be joyous all the time in order to, um, to really live for Christ. I'm using air quotes. (laughs) So, so to say like, Oh no, I'm actually, I'm struggling so much and I'm so scared. Um, that was hard. Yeah. That was not even, that was hard. Like it just felt uncharacteristic of me Mm. that I had to admit that that it was that nothing I could do could bring me to a place of joy because I felt like everything had fallen apart around me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. True. And on top of that, you're like, oh, by the way, like, don't stress out too much because your blood pressure might spike. And then, <laughs> right. And then you're going to, you guys should see this face that she was making, <laughs> but like your blood pressure <laughs> might spike. And then like, who knows if that's going to lead to preeclampsia, like every step. All of it. Yeah. It, it, 
in, in, in our pregnancies, it was like, you were so much closer to stress at every step because it's yeah. just, it, it was this anxious time. This idea that like, as black mothers, we are so disadvantaged. And mm -hmm. so I think coming in and being more, I think mentally in my mind about all these things that I could potentially be facing mm. in a place where I'm entering rooms by myself. Like I don't have Mark to advocate with me and for me, Yeah, you know, like for people to take me seriously when I know something's off, just these things that it's, I don't know about you. I try to tell myself as a black mom and as a black woman, like I want to be aware, but not afraid mm. with all that's happening. Mm -hmm. And I want my kids to be aware and not afraid. And yet I feel like I really did have to walk through fear as I entered the thresholds of these doctor's appointments, because I knew what might not be given to me. Yeah. And it's just like, so much is already being taken away already, you know, mm -hmm. and you know, the things that I bring to the table, are they going to be heard? And, you know, some things did, some things didn't. And some of that I believe is just the general luck of the draw, but in the same place, you know, kind of hoping that like, and this sounds a little morbid, but like that I make it through. I, but that it, it sounds morbid, but that's like the truth of it is that we but, have to, we don't know if we will. I mean, the mortality rate is significantly higher. It's like, I don't even know. I can, I can find the statistics. <laughs> the mortality no, rate is significantly high. higher for black yeah. women. Yeah. So we go into these places and there's no one to advocate it for us. No one. Yeah. There's just no one there for us. And then you don't know if you're going to have a doctor who medically gaslights you. Like, yep. I know I said I had two home births before, but I did have a great relationship with my midwife. But after having the time to reflect, I realized that I didn't receive the type of care that I really needed to thrive. And that's mm. what led me to the decision to go to a birth center. Um, mm. And my, it's funny because at the birth center that I went to, there were, I think four or five women um, and they're all nursing midwives. So there was one woman who's Asian American and another um, black midwife. And I remember talking to the black midwife about this, about her, just about me being pregnant. And yeah. um, at one point she was like, yeah, I don't know if I'm gonna stay here that much longer because mm -hmm. um, of how I'm getting treated by clients. And I kid you not, I felt like I was begging her to stay. Like, I was like, yeah. I was like, I give birth in like maybe four more months. Yes. I, I would love for you to be there for my baby's birth because I trust you. Yeah. And it's not that I don't trust the other women here, but like, I'm a relationship person. And I, I, I really base my trust off of, off of the relationship. I was like, I have no desire to have a relationship with these other midwives. I have a desire to have this relationship with you because you listen to me when I say there's a problem. It's true though. I recently met someone who is a black midwife as well. And <laughs> just hearing her experiences and her vision and her purpose in being and staying in this field, even as a black woman, I'm like, there's not enough. There's not enough of us in this maternal space that mm -hmm. is so sacred and you know it's it just makes me think wider on the systems that prevent that you know and yes 
but I, I can understand begging for that. I can truly understand that because yeah. it feels like life or death. That's how it, it feels. Yeah. It's like literal life. Cause you're giving literal. Birth. And then also just, like everything around the corner, it feels like if one thing goes wrong, then, then if the baby doesn't die, that I could die. Like those were the realities yeah. of my, True. of my thought process. Um, yeah. And it, yeah. But all of the bars, you're right. All the bars that hinder black women, women of color, um, indigenous women from going into the field of not just like the OBGYN field, but just the birth field and the birth space. Yes. Right. People and women of color and mothers of color talk about the ways that we have to like reclaim our motherhood in these systems. Mm-hmm. And like these moments that we're having conversations with our OB team or our midwife team, doula team, birth center, you know, lactation nurses, all the things. Oh, yeah. It's like, <clears throat> I think for me, this go around with my third reminded me that the things that I reclaim was trying to reclaim or really did reclaim with my first two are also going to be different things that I'm reclaiming this time around because I know more and I want more and I want better. Mm-hmm. And it's just these things, but it's to imagine that we as women have to reclaim so much because so much has been taken. Yeah. That you're, it's people usually talk about having like scraps at the table, but I feel like as, as mothers of color, as pregnant, pregnant people, this, the scraps aren't even on the table. They're on the floor. Yeah. And trust. you like enter the medical field um, not professionally, but you just enter as someone who needs prenatal care. And it is unfortunate that you have to muster up the strength to advocate for yourself. Otherwise, no one's going to listen to you. And, right. and then you think that, that that care that you receive is like, that's all you're going to get. Right. Yeah. The mediocre care. Yeah. The mediocre, just the mediocrity, mediocrity and the medical field is real. Um, but there, I mean, there are also, this is not to say that everyone is mediocre, but I just feel like as, as I read more and more testimonies from black women and not only their birth stories, but their postpartum stories, Mm. how rooted that is in like generational and historical trauma, um, and also generational and historical oppression. It just, there's a part of me that's like, can we birth in a different dimension in which the people believe us and love us and care for us? Like, could that happen? I, honestly, there's times where I'm like, how are we, how did we make it? Right. And like, and I think about, there's a thing I read on someone's thing. I think it had to do with something not related to race in particular. I think it had to do with chronic illness, mm-hmm. but anyways, the saying was like, you know, you say I'm being brave or being bold or whatever, but really I had no choice other than to be such thing Hmm. or this idea of resilience. And I always ask myself, what, what was the cause to the resilience? What led someone to be resilient? Right. Mm -hmm. And most of the time it's an outside oppressive force that we as people of color or as women or whatever field of, you know, a marginalized community you find yourself in, we are resilient because, you know, some of my belief is that that's in our blood, but it's also yeah. because of these outside forces that have forced us to be resilient. And I think about that. I'm like, how exhausting of an existence this is 
mm-hmm. to have to be resilient. Like that's our only choice. Yeah. What, it's, what is that? Yeah. It's like black girl magic only exists because of white people violence. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I'm really thankful that you think that I'm so magical as a black woman, like, cool, cool, great. But let's also address the fact that like, I have to be this strong because a, nobody believes me B no one believes that institutional violence exists. And then also see, like, you're not even paying attention after I got to this point. (laughs) I lost you at like my, because (laughs) yeah. Right. I lost you when I started talking, you just decided to give me this compliment so that you can please yourself that. Yeah. It's so, yeah, it's, it is truly exhausting. It really is. (laughs) It's exhausting to just live full stop. Yeah. But it is exhausting to also like be, be someone who carries life, brings life and nurtures life. And that expectation of doing it well. Um, but then also like, well is is defined according to like mommy blogs and, um, books and videos and all these things. And the market is saturated by a specific identity of like white women who, who don't understand what our trauma is like. Yes. Sorry. Yes. That's something too I've written about of just with my eldest, I was in such what I didn't realize, but such a valley of like postpartum depression because of the pressures I found in little tiny squares on a grid Yeah, that had me hold these expectations that literally were putting my life and my son's life in danger, which is very mm-hmm. scary and sad to admit. And I think I was talking to some friends over the summer who came to visit me and I literally broke down in the middle of like a restaurant saying, you know, I, it's a miracle. I'm here. It's a miracle. My son is here today Mm -hmm. because, because of the heaviness that I carried of white expectation of what my motherhood should be. And finally, when those chains were broken, having a conversation with a black mother in my apartment complex, it was Mm -hmm. like, I will never forget that moment. I will, I still hold that moment today in the Mm -hmm. ways in which I, I put myself first so that I can be the best for my family and my community. And I think that's what's so, it's so unfortunate because the narratives we're seeing or hearing are wider, you know, Eurocentric and some of them are stolen narratives from us that now they're taking, Oh yeah, you know, the crunchy midwife world is just appropriation of indigenous culture. Yes. Yes. And it's like, and, or it's, you know, yeah, denying access for us too, as we try to mother and mother well and whatever that looks like. And mothering well, like you said, like not in these, you know, other white standards or Eurocentric standards, but the wellness that comes from like our roots and our, you know, indigenous bloodlines and um, our cultures, you know, like we've been surviving before this. Yeah. You know, and surviving well, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> we've been. I, I recently came across, um, I'll put it in the show notes, but it was a TikTok video and, um, <laughs> it is by a Navajo man who is getting his PhD and I forgot what it was. I think it's like in history or cultural anthropology, but what he was saying was before the colonizers came, there was relatively no diseases. Like there definitely was not syphilis or smallpox. Cause those were brought in by the colonizers, um, that he was basically saying like for for thousands of years, our indigenous people um, were living abundant and healthy lives 
because of our lifestyle. Um, and now we get blamed for essentially like the experience of trauma that has happened generationally. And I use the word we from his context. So he's talking about his own indigenous people. Um, but yeah, the, we are now that we are coming back to our, not only like our indigenous roots that we have already had, um, but really preserving our ways um, and yeah. making our ways known and advocating for our ways. Um, it, it changes, like it is changing our community. It is changing our ability to have ownership. Um, but it's also changing the, like the public image of what it means to right. be indigenous or native. Yeah. yeah. It, it was an eye-opening video. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. I just want to go back to revisiting what you're saying regarding um, what wellness is. That yeah. wellness is so, especially wellness in motherhood, is so de- is so defined by a white standard. Um, right. And now, I, I mean, I I do want to add new ones. Like there are organizations like like Latinx Parenting that does nonviolent um, decolonized parenting. Um, but yeah, as I. I would joke around like when people say, Camille, how are you doing it as a mom? I literally say like, oh, the bar's low. <laughs> yeah. That's, that is my answer. Um, yeah. But yeah, as, as black women, indigenous women, women of color, um, we, there really is no standard of wellness for us that we're right. creating our own standard. Truly, truly. And I think about this too, as someone it's interesting to birth as an adoptee because mm. there's so much reconciling and I also think so much tearing apart mm-hmm. all at the yeah. same time there's rebirthing there's dying there's I mean there's just like a whole cycle of life that happens I think and I would say most adoptees who are women who experience pregnancy in that way would say the same where it's just this you are facing so much new that's so biological that you've never experienced before. Mm. You've never had, especially in my context of like not knowing my bloodline or my birth story. And so, mm. so it's just, it's interesting when I think about like wellness, it feels layered. I think that most women of color can also attune themselves to, but also just my lived experience as well as an adoptee of like wellness is you know, choosing my mental health first. That yes. not, might not be like the Eurocentric narrative. You know, the Eurocentric narrative might be, oh, get, you know, the great Bjorn baby bouncer. That's wellness because that's the product you need, you know, for mm-hmm. happy babies. And like, mm-hmm. no, that's not my wellness. My wellness is like my mental health. That's yeah. my wellness, you yeah. know, or the wellness is, you know, I think really for me wellness too in this time was really I think accepting that you know I'm going to be parenting in a way that I was never parented before Mm. and and how do I do that well like Mm -hmm. that's the wellness that I, I look into and you know to have I think a biological or a birth mother 
baby relationship severed to now be experiencing the same family dynamic with my daughter. It's like, how do I do that? Well, Mm -hmm. and you know, how do I mother myself when I wasn't mothered and how do I mother my children who have a present mother? And Mm -hmm. I also think too, and I don't know about you, but it's like, sometimes I have to sit and be like rewriting generational curse and trauma is exhausting the work is good the work is hard and holy but it's deeply exhausting you know yeah I'm working from places that I'm you know that aren't healed that are in the process that are still you know lightly triggered by a tantrum like just all these things that it's I think women of color especially those of us who have the privilege to be aware of the ways in which we've been oppressed because I don't believe everyone has access to that awareness no. um, so I know that's a privilege in and of itself but for those of us who are in that group I think we ask ourselves what is wellness and I think wellness looks like healing these yeah. generational lines and you know seeing the roots of our family tree dug deeper yeah. and you know those are the things I think about with wellness and not the typical what brand and you know what car seat and crib and what you're saying also reminds me of is how prioritizing our own mental health is not a standard of wellness in in this in in this world of like motherhood as defined by whiteness, because we define wellness according to how you can silence the baby, right? How you can please and appease the baby versus like, what does the mom need? Yep. Yeah. I haven't thought about that. I'm going to stew on that one for a long time. What I want to, I want to shift this conversation to talk about what it means to be just a mom with trauma. Yeah. Right. Like I, I think it's because of the church context I came from the backstory is that like, there everyone was so like entrenched in this Dave Ramsey lifestyle. And like, you want to create an inheritance for your children. And there was a period of time where I just broke down crying with my husband. Cause I was like, it's not that I don't believe in us. I just think it's harder for us to create an inheritance for our children um, right. and for our grandchildren. Um, Cause he and I grew up poor. Uh, he and I have riddled with so like so many things that we are growing and healing from. And there was a moment that he just looked at me and he was like, the inheritance that we give our children is a, the fact that they're, that they're not going to know the traumas that we have known in our life, in our lifetime, but also the inheritance that we're giving them is their ability to, to know their own emotional state, Mm -hmm. like to have emotional intelligence and to lead with that. Right. Which is so hard. I don't know if you've, I mean, I I don't know, I'm not sure how you have experienced, but there's this, this part of motherhood where you are triggered and your child is having a tantrum. So what do you do now? Yep. Yep. (laughs) And I think too, well, it's like parenting your younger self, you know, Yeah. it's, it's doing both. And I think too, like the emotional intelligence, I think is so key, especially, I, I feel like those in our generation grew up in households 
where there was no vocabulary. And what I mean by mm-hmm. that is there was no language given mm-hmm. to, yeah. to not only name, which I find I'm really into storytelling and I'm really into the, you know, like that language and words will power. And so when you are not instructed as a young person to have language and mm-hmm. to use that empowered vocabulary to not only name yourself and what you're experiencing, but also to give room for others to, to name themselves and what they're experiencing there is such a lack. And so I think as parents now that we're trying to give, at least I feel this way, I try to give my boys at this time in this season, these tools to navigate who they are. And yet I was never given these tools. So it sometimes feels like a fish out of water or it feels uncomfortable or Mark and I joke about like gentle parenting. If you were to ask our neighbors, they'd probably say there's nothing gentle about our parenting, but we do <laughs> have effort, you know? It's um, an A for effort situation, totally. Right, yeah. And so there's just this, this you know, dynamic for Mark and I have, I think for Mark, you know, allowing his sons to have emotion and his biggest thing, because this was, I think, coming from a lack of, is Mark <laughs> wants to be approachable to Mm. his sons at all times because his father was never someone he could approach and so I feel like that's what he takes into his fatherhood and we both grew up fatherless if you want to call it that way we did have people step in in the father role Mm -hmm. um, which we're grateful for and I think for me instilling in my boys too is you know I want to give them like I said the vocabulary and words to define themselves and I think that will then invite hopefully for their own hearts to receive how others want to describe themselves into whatever capacity, mm-hmm. because I didn't have language for my specific unique experience until well into adulthood. And even today, and the only reason why I'm understanding words that resonate with my story is because I'm listening to other stories. So, mm. you know, it's, it's that thing for me where I want my kids to be exposed to many stories because I think that'll give them language. Um, And I also want our house to be a place where, um, yeah, any and all things can be discussed and invited and welcomed and, you know, but it's hard in the midst of a tantrum, you know, and there's times where, you know, I'm honest and it's, things come out of my mouth and I'm like, I was honest. I'll give yeah. that. It might not have been the most appropriate time to say it, but I was honest, you know? Yeah. And so, but I also, Mark and I are very, very intentional with apologizing to mm-hmm. each other in front of our kids. Or oh, to that's, our kids. that's completely revolutionary. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, and I think for both of us, I was telling Mark this years ago, it's like we're parenting and we're starting literally a new generation of families from the two that we come from where there's like a two parent home. Cause we just, mm-hmm. we didn't have that. And so it is weird. I think for us to parent together when we've been raised by one, mm-hmm. you know, it's yeah. like really see it as a partnership and um, yeah, but I would say his is to be approachable and mine is definitely to give my, my kids language. Cause I didn't have that. You know, I think you kind of parent out of what you didn't have. Mm-hmm. but yeah I would say I don't know if that answers your question but it does yeah well you're it's something that you said that I'm going to rephrase is that being a generational curse breaker has to start with a, sto- a story and it starts with the mm-hmm. story in the context of like we 
like I was raised in violence. So I only like, I react out of violence. Right. Um, and to be a to like gentle parenting is as when people talk about it, especially when they talk about it in like these soft, like, like yeah. really like beautiful ways. I'm like, dude, screw you. Like I, like I, I don't think you understand that. Like just the word gentle and parenting, yes. it's like my, both sides of my brain have to come together and like work the strongest that they can right. so that I have an understanding of what that means. But yeah, you have to, you really have to rely on like the story and the testimony of other people. Um, and, and for me, it's like, especially other people who look like me, um, yeah. to be able to like sustain the fact that you're charting through uncharted territory and you're, you're really trying to raise up a new generation to not know what you've known. Yes. And I think that too, where it's like, it's a good calling for me about even just the language of like gentle parenting too. Cause I mean, I joke, but there's, there's truth to, I think for me, that approach to me just reminds me like, let's be a present parent. Like mm -hmm. that's what it's calling me into being. Mm -hmm. um, and like you said, like gentle doesn't equate the same across lines, right? Like yeah. your gentleness is very different than mine. Like my gentleness is like people pleasing, yeah. you know? And, but is that gentle? You know, it's just like, I mean, that's a more philosophical approach, but all that to say, I appreciate that you brought in that like, yeah, but gentle parenting, that doesn't equate even what they're trying to narrate that yeah. approach did that make sense yeah it does it's also and yeah. is it privilege too you know like are people who, are people who are saying gentle parenting like the people who are privileged enough to do gentle parenting yeah who haven't like known who haven't known what we've known like detachment yep. you know insecure attachment theory all of like violence all like i i am very grateful for the people who advocate for gentle parenting and i'm also someone who like i earnestly try but it comes to the point where it's like, I'm actually like, I can't live this lifestyle because I'm still trying to give my younger self the tools that she didn't have to cope. Right. Um, and the reason why I'm still trying to give them to her is because at every moment I'm like respond, I feel like I'm responding to something new that one of my children brings up that I'm like, oh, wow. Like I, I don't know how to respond to what you're feeling in, mm -hmm. in a way that is, um, that is like life-giving. So yeah. we're, you and I are just going to sit in both of our emotions and like no yeah. action is going to happen because I have to figure out how to help the girl that I was inside before I can figure out how to help you Yeah, in order for it to be yeah. authentic. And I was thinking about that too, just now of like, and maybe gentle parenting for us is actually like pause parenting where we have yeah. to pause and be like, wait, 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 wait. Yeah. yeah. Because in the pause, that's maybe where the gentleness towards ourselves comes in, you know, yeah. is when we take that breath, but. Oh, it's like girl. the, it's the be still and know that I'm God. It's like, oh yeah. My parenting looks a lot. looks very still Yeah, because I can't, I, I, I having a book with all of the tools is great, but if I can't embody it, like I can't embody just words. I have, I need, I need yeah. time with yeah. it and it ain't easy. Like it's just not easy at all. It's not, it's a toil. It's we're pruning and toiling 
I mean, I do garden references a lot, but it's that idea of like, we are literally getting our hands dirty for this work. Like, at least I have to, I have to like really get in there. Oh, totally. And you just look at your kids and you're like, am I weird? Are you weird? Mm -hmm. Is this just like Mm -hmm. a weird dynamic that we have? Like my, my daughter is so in tune with her emotions. And like one day I picked her up from school and I was like, how's school baby girl? And she was like, it was great. I cried once. And I was like, oh, so like, (laughs) like, is it great because you cried once instead of more times or was it great because just, just cause you had that cry. And she was like, no, I cried. And then after I cried, I felt better. And I just kept on, I kept it moving. And I was like, I was sitting there and thinking like, yeah, that's weird. Yeah, That's weird, but it's, all, but it's healthy. I should, it's, yeah. I, that it is healthy that she is allowed, allowing herself to be human because we're creating the space for it. Yes. But you know, as you like raise up your child and then you watch them be the person who has the tool bag that you've given them. I feel like I look at my kids and I'm like, this is like, this is really weird. This is a very strange, this is very strange to see you be so healthy and to know that I'm, I'm like still working on it myself. Right. Right. It's like, well, at least you got a leg up from mine. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. I'll, I'll, and when they're 16, I'll be like, okay, now you need to leave the breathing exercises because I'm tired. Like, (laughs) yes, you can do it to yourself. You can do it to yourself. You can teach the yoga class because mommy can't do it anymore. (laughs) Right. Go lead your workshop. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Acknowledge me in the comments of your book. (laughs) Acknowledgements, mom. You you. better put dedicated to your mom. (laughs) This flyleaf, this flyleaf better be, better say mom, mom did all the things. Exactly. Yeah. But that speaks towards, like, I mean, this whole conversation really does speak towards, like, I feel like things to social media as mothers who are, Black and Indigenous that we are, well, Black, Indigenous, and Asian, I'm going to include myself in this, but we are like, we're exposed to all of these tools and and conversation pieces that we've never had. And it's, sometimes it feels like you're drinking out of a fire hydrant, at least for myself, Mm. where I'm like, okay, like now I have like this clap back about speaking and now I understand this. And now I like, now I know why the chocolate is bad. Like, (laughs) like I, I have all of this language to understand it's not embodied and that being a generational curse breaker, like raising up the next generation, that really is the embodied practice. And it's, right. it's become this, I put a lot of pressure on myself because I'm an Enneagram three um, and I'm working on myself all the time, but it, it is, it's come to this point where it's like, it's really painful. Mm-hmm. Like motherhood is hard and it, it, it will heal you and grow you in so many ways, but it has become, it's become so hard to, to create your own standard, mm-hmm. I should say. It's become, yep. and it's become so hard to create like a restorative motherhood yeah. is, there's no diagram for it. We're literally right. playing as we go. <laughs> yep. I felt that sigh. That was like an ancestral sigh. Yes. <laughs> I, my week just end right there. <laughs> it's so, it's so true. It's, I think that's the pain of rewriting narratives. That's, you know, 
that's I think the grit and the glory is Mm. this is it right and yeah it's I always say motherhood is you know not for the faint of heart no matter what I don't care where you come from (laughs) it's not for the faint of heart but I will I will also add to that that yes like you said I like that you had named restorative motherhood because I think that that's the goal Mm -hmm. you know for us anyway at least for my for for myself is yeah that there's restoration occurring and there's I think a new like redefining of what motherhood is and you know I think you're right with the hose idea or just that like there's social media has like connected us and is you know connected us to others that are very similar Mm -hmm. but in the same breath there's a lot of noise Mm. and I think sometimes I want to trust myself more that I actually can do this because I am doing this that makes Mm -hmm. sense yeah I know there's a big a big whole like let's put it on t-shirt graphics of like I can do hard things and a part of me is like we are doing hard things it's not I can I am I am presently doing the hard things Mm -hmm. and let me trust myself a little more and I Mm -hmm. think our ancestors trusted themselves yeah they were grounded yeah you know that's so true it's it is that's so true and I wonder if like our ancestors are like oh my gosh the gentle parenting when they're like (laughs) listen into yourself like we are with you you know like this I mean I may get a little weird but like this we're our spirits are with you you're carrying us Oh, that's not and like that, you know, that's ground, that should be grounding you mm-hmm. instead of all this noise. It's like, you know, especially as I get to know my birth mom, it's, it's really interesting, you know, most tribes, but our tribe too, just is very into storytelling and like, you know, orally sharing our history and, mm-hmm. you know, so much of the time is like, they just carry stories, but like, that's enough. That's the yeah. bread and butter. Yeah. You know? It isn't this extra class on like how to get your baby to sleep or, right. you know, these tips and tricks that basically just result in you buying something. That's, that's right. what, yeah, it's not marketable. It's, you know, I've even uh, read some words from indigenous people on like parenting and mothering of like, you know, we like, we sleep with our babies because we are their home. You know, they don't sleep in their other room or they don't sleep in a crib. It's like, no, they don't just cry. I mean, everyone to each their own trust. Like mm-hmm. you're the best mother for the best peeps in most situations. But I think there's this part of ourselves that we just don't trust ourselves because of the noise. And I'm like, wow, I really, I wonder if exiting from there allows us to enter into more of our deeper selves. And in that deeper space, we find home and we find comfort and we find, you know, the ways in which to guide and protect and the ones that we're raising and it has nothing to do with the outside noise but everything yeah. that's like already within us I don't know I love that no I love everything it's like what is an in- like a deeply spiritual intuition-based motherhood look like yeah you know, one where you're allowed to trust yourself like it this goes back to like the beginning of our conversation of reproductive justice of being medically gaslit not being able to trust yourself but yeah, I, I am, I, one of my meditations as of lately, um, has not been to like meditate on who my ancestors were because 
I'm just, I, I'm not going to meet them unless like something magical, like something, something that is incredibly supernatural happens. Yeah. Unless unless someone comes out and I will scream very loud because I'll be so scared. But just this thought of like, I, like, I, I always think about when your, when my ancestors, um, you know, they die and they go to heaven and how, um, it was once explained to me that like, well, heaven is a place with no sin. So like mm. so many things are, are washed, like you're just what cleansed of all these things. And then you go to heaven and you're not, um, like those, the violence that you have experienced doesn't define you anymore, like essentially. So as of lately, my meditation has been like, well, who are my ancestors outside of the violence? Because like there, there is the violence of enslavement, militarization, sexual violence, colonization that like has gone through so much of my bloodline because of like white supremacy. And I, I, I'm definitely a a person who like, I believe in the great cloud of witnesses saying like ancestors, please guide me does not, um, doesn't scare me, but also like, who are you outside of the violence now that you are in that cloud of witnesses and how can that person that you are now lovingly guide me in through all of this, especially right. like in this restorative motherhood. Right. Like, what does that look like? And I also think about that too. Sorry if I'm interjecting, but that idea too about heaven and how like the pains that we've experienced here will be gone while we're there. And mm-hmm. I just, I think about this too, because what about like I'm in relationship with my husband, Mark, my partner, or my kids, or my mom, or whatever. And there is nothing perfect about this relationship. There have been wounds made and wounds I've created myself and mm-hmm. healing done and deeper wounds being excavated again. Like, and so a part of me is also like, wait, so you're telling me those who have caused me pain here, I won't have recollection of them there. Then how do I carry them? where are they? How do I even recognize Mark? Who's my partner? Mm -hmm. Because we're not in perfect harmony here. Like, so there's just a part of me too, that just, you know, has these conversations with, you know, the Jesus about who, who are we up in heaven? And, you know, it's the traumas we've been inflicted upon mainly by others is who we are. Yeah. It's how we function. It's how we live and breathe and storytell and relate. And so I just, I wonder where there's magic in there too. There's pain, but there's, you know, there's glory. And is that all gone? Yeah. I don't know. What does it, what does it look like? Conversations. Yeah. But the heaven conversations are like, they're, they're all questions and no answers. I'm like, there's truly. Yeah. <laughs> I was talking to my husband. I'm like, so, you know, I realized that I fell in love with your toxic traits and your trauma. And like, we have both healed and we're completely different people than we were then. But when we die, will I know yeah. who you are? Yes. <laughs> I want to revisit the idea of this, like spiritual intuition based motherhood mm-hmm. that in, in the context that I know it's, it has been capitalized off of, like when you, when you mentioned, um, parenting and how indigenous, like, and from your tribe, like the indigenous parenting Mm -hmm. style is like, well, we sleep with our babies because we're their first home. Like, right. And now it's just called co-sleeping. Right. 
so really it's like the beauty is taken out of it the beauty of 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 understanding the spirituality yeah has has been removed how do we reclaim that how have you reclaimed that I should ask yeah that's really good I think one it is disheartening to see I think what I would call more of the rawness of you know my people being on displayed and marketed like that's a hard thing to swallow Mm -hmm. um when there's no acknowledgement of that either yeah and it's just like "Mm, that's also from my people or these people like not even just mine but just others that continually are still oppressed but I think for me personally reclaiming like more of the spiritual intuitive I think really does look like just trusting myself more in like my daily things because I I didn't want to have children which is ironic now that I'm having you know birth three but it's just a lot of it was fear-based and I think feeling as though I don't have I always ask myself, like, what if I birth my eldest? Like I was thinking, what if I birth Joaquin and I don't have a motherly instinct? What happens? Mm-hmm. Okay. Because I was never with the person who had the motherly instinct over me. Mm-hmm. And so I think for me, it's like personally just trusting that like I have my own instinct and I have the capacity and what it takes to train and guide my royalty to the best of my ability. And also... I take it in with this, this mindset that like, I don't do this alone and I will not do this alone. Mm. This will be communal upraising, mm-hmm. upraising up. Yeah. Raising up. Sorry. And, um, I think those are the ways I kind of just reclaim for my, myself, my spiritual intuitiveness is trusting myself in the moments where maybe I'm scared. Mm-hmm. And then also understanding that being intuitive is for me to invite others in and you know share what they have as well and influence and impact our families so Sharday, i have some rapid fire questions to conclude today's episode of the podcast that i want to ask you all right so are you ready yes okay (laughs) the first question (laughs) is what gives you hope? Yeah. Ugh. The thing, the two things that I can pull from where my hope lies is one is solely in the Jesus. That's, that's it. Mm-hmm. But if I were to add anything else, I would say really the hope for me lies in storytelling because I believe that humanizes us. Oh, and, yes. you know, I think if we're not humanizing one another, as we've seen, it gets really dark quite quickly. And Mm -hmm. so I, I think when there's humanizing, I think that's really done through storytelling and through healing and through invitation. So those are kind of where I feel like the hope lies. Oh, I love that. Yes. All right. Question number two, what is your favorite holiday dish? Ooh, it doesn't matter the holiday. Doesn't matter. Does not matter which holiday. That's so good. Um, I will choose Thanksgiving, not because it's in a couple of days, but there's a dish that um, growing up my family would make and it's stuffing with um, Smokies in it and rice. Do you remember rice aroni? Yeah. 
Okay. So they would do stuffing rice roni and these like tiny smokies in it. And it would all be in like one mixtured pot. And it's every year it was the one dish I'd only eat. I'm not a big like turkey gravy person. I'm not uh, either. Okay. Yeah. No, we do non-traditional, literally we do non-traditional Thanksgiving every year. And, but anyways, this one dish was like, people just knew like set aside one bowl for Chardonnay and then have the other bowl out for everyone else. Cause it was the only thing I'd eat. It was just, it's so good. And I've tried to replicate it myself and it's embarrassing and not edible. And, but I would say that was probably growing up my favorite dish. I, yes, it's good. We'll it's have good. To have it one time. We will. We'll have I think my favorite part about, about having this podcast is that every time I ask this question, it always ends with, we'll just have the dish one day. I'm like, yes, please. I love that. <laughs> you should just gather all the people you've had on your podcast and have a feast. Yes. Podcast. Podcast feast. That. Podcast. Yes. That works. Yes. <laughs> I love that. That's a hashtag right there. Hashtag podcast. Um, all right. Last <laughs> question is what affirmation or prayer do you consistently say? Mm, that's good. Um, you know, it's interesting. I say this with and over my boys and now my daughter, but, um, I think the reason why I'm bringing this up is I also say this to myself Mm -hmm. and the things, the things in which we say, you know, this phrase is, I think a reminder of who we are and, uh, who we are becoming. And so my boys now have memorized that, you know, usually before bed or, you know, kind of throughout the day, if I can remember, to be perfectly honest, um, the three things we say about ourselves is that um, they say, I am strong, I am kind, and I'm a king. And I think it just kind of reminds them of the pillars of who they are, that they're royalty. And I find that when they say those things, it's also said over me and Mm -hmm. said within our home. And so that's kind of the meditation or the words that I think I hold really close as a mother. Yeah. Speechless. <laughs> oh, thanks. I'm, I'm, I'm emotional over this. Oh, I love it. Thank you. I know I'm going to sit in these emotions until my kids come and I have to make dinner, but I am. Yep. Right. And then we put them on the shelf. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for being on this podcast, Charday. I have one last question. It, which is where can people find you um, if they wanted to find your find you on the internets? On the interwebs that are so wide, you will find the best place to find my little corner is um, on Instagram. My handle is at Charday Renee. Um, and yeah, that's kind of where I'm at most days. And I have projects lined up. So I think down the road, people can find themselves in those spaces, but for sure on the grid, Excellent. On on the grid. On the grid. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to Oh Holy Night, a podcast created and produced by me, Camille Hernandez, brought to you by Anchor by Spotify. If you are enjoying what you're listening to, please like, subscribe, save, and comment so that others can get to know more about this work and this devotional for this Advent season. All right, fam. I look forward to speaking with you soon. Bye.